Hello and welcome to Economic and Political Weekly's podcast show Research Radio. I'm your host Abhishek and every Monday we will talk to scholars about their research methodology and process, what they didn't include in their research, how research can further equity and much more. Professor Virginius Kakha, who teaches at the Institute for Human Development in Delhi, joins us. His past research has focused on plantation laborers, tribal communities, agrarian structure and social exclusion. Today he'll be speaking about tea plantations and the manner in which workers organize themselves to struggle for living wages and humane working conditions. Thank you so much for joining us Professor Kakka. Would you like to start by telling us about what made you interested in learning and researching about tea plantations? I grew up in tea states and my parents were working as a plantation workers so i had already some understanding of what actually been happening in the tea states when i began my doctoral program and started thinking of what is it that i should really work on on those days agrarian studies was very important uh, land questions there were a lot of debates on the the emergence of capitalistic agriculture in india right and can you tell us about how the tea plantation system emerged who benefited from the system and at whose expense in order to understand uh, the emergence of tea states in india i think one has to go back to history in uh, 17th 18th century find that the tea plantations out other sorry plantations in different part of the world are actually become a very important economy like the coffee the banana sugarcane and so and so cotton and all that commercial crops which were needed in europe it were around these times that you find also the consumption of tea was quite common let's say among the royalties in the european particularly in britain and they had a tea trade with china and china from china they used to get tea and therefore the tea had become an important item of consumption in britain but then you find that uh, sometime around the 19th century uh, beginning of the 19th century you find that the relationship between uh, great britain and china got strains and that uh, seriously impacted the export of tea from china to great britain and therefore they were frantically looking for an alt or alternative place because this has become a very important item of consumption not only in great britain but also in europe so it has a big market it is within this context that they started experimenting the cultivation of tea in assam and parts of bengal particularly darjeeling and all and this experimentation became successful you know the first lot of the tea out of this experimentations from assam around 1840s was sent to for auction in great britain and it got it faced a very uh, good price so with a few years you find that large number of investment came up and a lot of tea grants were made available by the colonial state and they were giving them a very concessional price for example posing they give uh, let's say 2000 hectares of land then they say well 10% of the land you have to bring in the cultivation in the next 10 years so this is the way in which it grew and large number of tea companies really came up and then of course uh, the benefit of tea plantation was surely to the great Britain. because i just told you that uh, the capital was available land was also plenty and available at that time because assam what is called these are forest areas and there was a very small thin population and therefore it was although you find that the 
tribals there made use of it, but there was a vast tract of jungles and wastelands. So it were these, therefore, that were under the control of the colonial state, and therefore they made land freely available to the what is called the capital, the British planters. So the land was in plenty. Capital was also available because a lot of profit was already being made in Great Britain and also by traders and the officials of British officials, let's say, in India. So they all needed a avenue to plow them back. But only problem that they had was the shortage of labor because the, the northeastern region, particularly Bengal or even Darjeeling or Assam, were very scanty populations and they could not have really managed it to the so even if all would have worked, even then it was insufficient. And people were not interested in working because this was in, deep in the interior, infested with jungles, wild animals, and malaria and all that. And uh, also you find that they had already doing their subsistence agriculture. So they were not interested in. So it is at this kind of a context that they thought of having an organized recruitment. So organized recruitment, they would bring laborers from outside. So invariably you find since local labor was not sufficient and local labor was also not forthcoming because you find that the wages in the subsistence agriculture was higher than the kind of wages which were really being paid in the states. So they had to therefore, because of this consideration, they had to look for a very steady and large supply of labor force. And therefore you find that they started an organized system of recruitment. So Indian Tea Association primarily came up in order to see that as to how best they can do this organized recruitment of the labor. And therefore, they started sending the contractors here and there, and contractors will hire subcontractors, and they will go to the interiors, they give them all kinds of uh, you know, false promises of high wages, of honey and milk and so on and so forth, intimidations, kidnapping, all the kind of stories that we hear about the slave labor. In fact, the processes which have also happened in case of recruitment of labor, let's say, in the states of Assam, Bengal. The laborers who were being recruited from different parts of India, particularly, let's say, in the initial phase, they did it from um, Eastern UP and Bihar, because these were the areas from which labor was being recruited for Mauritius, for West Indies, and so on and so forth. But subsequently, you find that they shifted the site of the recruitment from the, what is called the Northern Bihar and, 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 and Eastern UP and parts of Bengal to tribal areas which today are known as Jharkhand or Chhattisgarh or parts of uh, Andhra Pradesh, because these were the areas where you find these were th- jungles and people were used to jungles. And also you find that these were the areas who were resisting the, the British rules and administrations. So there were a large number of revolts and rebellions, you know, from the 1800s to almost 1900, uh, what's called uh, 1900. So almost this, this 100 years, there was a lot of tribal revolt and rebellion. So Triga, in fact, became also so one of the ways in which as to how to pump out their labor tribals who were actually creating a no and order problem, they also could provide a very cheap labor because uh, you're far away from their place, which is almost, let's say, 1,500 kilometers or 1,600 kilometers. And on those days, you know, once they go, it's very, very difficult to come back. You already started talking about this, but I was interested in knowing more about the system of recruitment and how the capitalist class transitioned over time. 
that because of the demand, oh, there was always shortage of labor. What you really find that because of this, there was all kinds of speculations among the planters or the capitalists to make investment, etc. So, you know, there were crises in the industry as well. Even during those days, at certain phases, there were crises. Uh, during the 1929, that Great Depression we talk about in history. So that really brought a hold to the expansions of the tea state. And also land, West land and other land which was available had also fallen short of because of already land was reclaimed or given as a grant to the planters. So at that particular point of time, you find that the land which was being used by the cultivators, particularly what we call the Zamindas or Zordas or large rich landlords, in fact, they were also converting their the substance agriculture into the tea plantation. So you also find that the entry of the natives into the tea industry, the Bengalis, the Asmis, the Marwadis were there. They were also entering into it. So that began around the around the 1870s, 80s onwards. Very soon after the introductions of the tea states by the British. But then, as I said, 1920, 1929, 1930s. I think they were really a problem because they had to come to an agreement, no more expansion. And uh, then you find that the freedom struggle movement and all that, you don't know much about the tea state during those times, between 1930, uh, let's say 1920s, 1940s, there's not much of an expansion, which is more of a consolidation. And also you find that there are freedom struggle movements. So you find in many tea states, tea garden laborers also participate in non-cooperation movement, etc., etc. So particularly those states which were closer to the towns. So then you find after the eve of independence, of course, the unions have already started to form because railways where this railway union was formed and the people who were working in the railway union also have gradually began to move into the tea states where they were restricted, they were not allowed. But somehow they entered and started mobilizing it. So as early as the 1930s, uh, 1930s, 1938, 1939, 1940s, you find a number of tea gardens, particularly in Assam and also partly in Bengal. The workers were organized by the unions and there were some strikes and other kinds of movements. And what is the role that globalization has played more recently? If you look at the people who were recruited as the workers, they were already in a way experiencing globalization because they were producing for export. In the recent times, which has where you find globalization has become much more what is called evident, you find that the its impact in the T states has been very negative because it opened uh, up, uh, let's say, a little bit of the competition. Many tea gardens got closed because they were not able to compete with the markets uh, or tea, tea companies or uh, what is called other countries which are producing tea. And therefore, immediately after opening up 1991, you find that around 2000, 1998, 1996, 2001, 2002, large number of tea gardens, particularly in Bengal and, and Darjeeling in, and also in Kerala, they were really closed down. And the, the managers ran away from the tea state and left the tea, what's called tea workers at the tea gardens without any kind of support. And that led to a lot of starvation there malnutrition, the human rights violations, etc., etc. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. also to understand that as India became independent, most of the British were actually selling off their share or transferring their tea states to the Indians. And therefore, by 1960s, 1970s, you find that although there were still some hold of the British companies or the foreign companies, you find that more or less you find large chunk of the tea states or tea companies have almost become Indianized. You still find that there have been foreign companies which still have a stake in the tea industry. 
Right, so tea workers have been experiencing the impact of globalization since the emergence of the plantation system. Focusing in on your research, we have this notes from the field segment where we'd like to learn about a few details from your field work. When I began doing good research in the tea states, I think, uh, you know, I thought that it would be the smoothest, but I had the, really the most difficult time doing uh, field work. Uh, let's say in the 60s and 70s, you find that there were formation of unions, particularly in Bengal, you find that unions are multiple unions. So unions which are affiliated to Congress, unions which are affiliated to CPM, CPI, then you have RSP, and mean, you know, all that. And you find that some uh, in the 60s and 70s, particularly 70s, you find that the rivalry of the union. So what really happened that when I began to start doing my field work, already there was a conflict between two rival unions in the tea state where I was doing a field work. And I had no idea that this thing happened, that because of the rivalry of the union, you find that there was a violence. And so when I began doing a field work, I was suspected as being a government servant, you know, and trying to investigate the kind of violence and the murder that I actually taken. So I had a hard time, you know, getting into the field, but it took time. So almost for a month, I couldn't really do much. And then gradually started talking to them, establishing rapports. Then I started telling about them my own life in the tea garden. So that is how I gained the confidence. You know, sometimes you want to do field work, etc., etc. But then you also find that once you are doing it, you was working with uh, working with laborers. Laborers also become very vulnerable because you find the management may approach them and say as to what exactly is the person who has come from an outside is really asking them. And in your article, you've also discussed an important law on plantation worker and employer relations, the Plantation Labor Act that was passed in 1951, quite close to independence. Can you tell me about the history of this law and how it was implemented? When in principle, Plantation Labor Act was very important. Uh, see, prior to independence, that is during colonial period, there was no act in terms of which the relationship between the planters and the workers can be regulated. So it was whimsical. Plantation Labor Act, which came up in 1951, was the first act which began to regulate the relationship between the management and the workers. So they have to get, get an appointment letter. The appointment letter must spell out as to what is the terms and conditions of work, you know, etc. So that was Plantation Life Labor Act also had made a provision for education, for uh, uh, for health and when you talk about health it was uh, hospitals doctors nurses medicines uh, sanit sanitations toilet facilities etc then uh, uh, what is called there were also recreation facilities one of the important provisions also is to provide house the housing as you know in the tested was already being given but these were katcha houses so plantation labor act made a stipulation that the houses have to be converted into pakka houses and the workers must get a pakka houses this was a part of the rules many of the tea states started converting the katcha houses to the plantation what is called the pakka houses since the laws stipulates though you find that the pakka houses has been given to the workers but they not all the families that have got it. Then you had the hospital. So they are supposed to provide hospitals. This many number of workers, you know, this many uh, this many beds have to be in the hospitals. This many dispensaries has to be there. This many doctors have to be there, etc., etc. So that all this stipulated. Similarly, you know, sanitations and other things. 
60s, you do see there is a visibility of the fact that the pakka houses are being given, hospitals are there, dispensaries are there, doctors are there. So, But suddenly around 70s, you find that there has been a deterioration of these kind of services which were being given by the T-states. And uh, if you look at the, the schools, you find that earlier they used to give a school and a school is only primary school. So once you have a primary school, if you want to go to high school, there's no space, there's no schools around nearby. So you have to go very far away and be in the boarding house, you know, or uh, somewhere else with the relatives and go to the town. The whole these kind of social welfare measures, which is provided in the Plantation Labor Act, uh, the outcome of this provision seems to be almost negligible. And today, if you really go to that, you find that I have been, I, I go often. So when we were children, we find that the hospitals were really very good. Doctors were, there were a large number of doctors were there. You know, there were the nurses were there. But today, if you really go the same tea state where I spent my life, if you go to the hospitals, you find that there are, is there very bad conditions? There are doctors are just very few. Earlier, you find five, six doctors used to be there. There are only one or two doctors. In many tea states, they don't even keep doctors. Someone from the town will come twice a day. So, so similarly, if you find the housing, you find that all that pakka houses that came up, that came in 60s or 70s, and 80s onwards, you find there's no houses really coming up. So because of this, from 1980s, what really happened is gradually government began to take the responsibility of providing primary education. Many uh, states, like West Bengal, in fact, took up the responsibility of uh, providing the primary education to children from the state funds. So a state began to employ teachers. Only responsibility of the T-state management was to provide school buildings. Gradually, you find that in many states, like even in Bengal as well as in Assam, some of the medical facilities which were supposed to be provided by the T-state is now being given by the government. T-state management is almost shrinking its responsibility, abdicating itself from its responsibility of providing all those provisions which are supposed to be given under the Plantation Labor Act. Now, what do you find that uh, since these are not being provided, the state government should have enforced it through the what's called labor commissioners and others. But labor commissioners mm-hmm. themselves, they don't come. You know, in the 60s, they used to come, inspectors used to come and inspect whether the sanitations, the toilets, water and all that. Now, they don't come. So what do you find that even the state is taking its responsibility from taking care of the welfare measures of the plantation. Only thing they think the government, the state, has that it passed a law. And it expects that the, since they have passed a law, you know, they have done their responsibility towards the plantation labor. So in the process, you don't treat them as a citizen, in fact. And why was it that tea estates were made responsible to provide social services that the government usually provided to other citizens? Historically, if you really look at all these things actually was being taken care of by the tea estate management. So the structure or the system was already in place during colonial period. Now, the the post-independent India did not imagine in a new way. They continued with that colonial system, the colonial structure, by just enacting a law, just formalizing what was earlier informal. So this is the only thing they do. And therefore, I think the reason as to why they did it, because the T-state management is very very, uh, peculiar, because this is rural area. So it is not like a township where you have, you know, most of the industries and they get industrialized. Here you find they are in the interior and sometimes you find that they are even, even a more distant place than the villages. 
so you have absolutely no connections uh, what's called no communications and so on and so forth the most independent indian states would have been more imaginative in terms of addressing it or even when they saw that conditions of workers both in terms of educations and health has not improved because if you really go you find that in assam and bengal it is among the workers that you find highest rate of illiteracy and you find highest rate of malnutrition and so on and so forth so when they realize that this is not really working then i thought that the state in india in post independent india should have been taken a more proactive concern a more active proactive role in terms of addressing these issues but then that did not really happen now what really happened is that uh, tea state management always keep on blaming that you know the tea industry is running a loss we are not able to pay our expenses are that we are providing houses we are providing medicines we are providing hospitals you know we are providing rations and so on and so forth so we pay in kind and we pay in cash and therefore you find that they will try to say the, but the minimum wage is very low in tea state for example even in bengal the wage which the plantation laborers get is a lower than the minimum wage of the state so you find that i, I think in bengal it is around 169 or 70 in assam it might be just little less than that 165 something like that i don't exactly remember now so the wage of 160 or 70 a day you know is a, is a lower than the minimum wage which has been stipulated by the states in bengal as well as in assam workers are making a demand for the minimum wage and now they are saying is not even minimum so even if you give a minimum wage then now they are making a demand for decent wage but the planters are reluctant to it because they will say that we are giving you this this and therefore they say that we are giving more than the higher wages or more than the decent wage so they will inflate their wage in terms of calculating the houses the rations the other kinds of facilities they give and they say that we were we are already paying you around 350 or so and so whereas the workers will say that no you were paying only you know 100 70 so this dispute between the workers and the unions or the workers and the planters is really going on for almost since the post independent era you just don't know how to how to negotiate with because even when planters are saying that we are doing there is no transparency you know there is no participation of the workers arbitrarily they will fix up and say we are giving this but that as per the law they were supposed to give now and coming to the wage and the questions once you had asked me is also about the minimum wage now you know what really happened in the case of tea industries the 1957 when the industrial wage board was worked out see the planters started arguing that we give employment to the family they what is called industrial wage board has argued that three units of consumption must be the basis on which the wage should be determined so that is to adults and to children so that was three units of consumption now everywhere you find that the industrial wage board in fact fixed the minimum wage based on three units of consumption in case of tea industry what you really see is that when this principle was introduced the planters both indians and the british they started arguing that in tea states you know we give employment to the family and that tea industry is passing through the crisis and we cannot really give that kind of wage based on three units of consumption now because of this kind of pressure tactics by the association of the planters both indian and the and the foreigners the trade unions which were negotiating it they agreed to what is called the 1.5 units of consumption now that was a historical blunder which they made how could they in fact agree to the fact that a wage should be determined on the basis of 1.5 units consumption because they say the husband is working wife is working and they put two kids so you have to give 1.5 units 
everywhere you did not have in the 50s you had people who may be working husband wife and children even child labor was there in tea plantation so they were working but now you find that there is a huge surplus labor in the tea state and the many family you find that there's only one person is really working so the system which was in the 50s when you find that everyone had a sort of full employment in the sense that employment was there in the family husband wife children used to work that kind of system doesn't exist at all so so from the 70s onward you find that there is a surplus uh, what is called the labor in the tea state and as a result of which you find there you find households which are just dependent on one person and therefore based on that kind of principle because 1.5 units consumption that has continued and union has never challenged that that it was something which was done in the 1950s and probably at that particular point of time that kind of uh, uh, there was a number of workers but even that is unethical because anywhere your husband or wife works you can't say that your wife is working your husband is working and therefore we will give you half wages that never happens anywhere all throughout you find the unions have always been asking for incremental increase in the wages so you had let's say 1 rupee so 1 rupee to 1 rupee 50 paisa to 20 paisa that paisa so what do you find that the blunder the actual injustice which was done to never address and unions throughout this post independent era they have continued to negotiate an incremental wages over what the wages was there let's say previously so as a result of which you find that even today the wages are really very very low so the wage that we are talking about is actually is based on the principle work of 1.5 units of consumption which cannot really sustain the workforce today Despite high levels of unionization and the participation of women dalits and adivasis why is it that workplace abuse and exploitation remain commonplace on plantations the management was british the foreigners clerical staff was mostly bengalis or the assamese and you find the workers were mostly tribal so dalits and let's say maybe some small obcs so you do find that today that the tea garden labor force in assam in bengal and also in south india you find predominantly they come from the dalit and adivasi background vulnerability is also has come up because as i told you that earlier there was employment available because there was a demand for labor but that demand for labor no longer exists today because there is a surplus labor so what do you will find out now that the children who are born out of the erstwhile plantation workers they have no job and many of them therefore are now start moving out for work either in south india or other places either in the towns and cities women are going as a domestic workers so you find that the situations in the tea gardens have really become terrible now because there is no additional employment and you find that because there has been no education they have no other skills they are not educated well as i told you level of literacy is very low only primary schools so only people who are getting primary school they are now going to high school etc and also you find that as for the plantation workers is concerned in assam they are not considered as the scheduled tribes or scheduled castes the plantation workers they can't even get a reservation facilities even if they are educated so they have to compete they are mostly known as the more other backward classes so whereas you find that the counterparts elsewhere are scheduled castes or scheduled tribes in assam those who came let's say as plantation workers they are not treated as the scheduled tribes or scheduled castes they are primarily treated as the more other backward classes and therefore the kind of constitutional obligations that one could have for the scs and sts does not exist of course there is a demand by the plantation labor force in fact this demand has been going on since 1950s on which they are very sentimental about it every time they have organizations and movements this assertions has been there for scheduled tribe status so scheduled tribe status is one of them that's important yes 
And you've discussed how when tea estates moved from British to Indian hands at the leadership levels, Indians were more likely to erode on legal provisions for workers' rights and welfare. Why was this? Whereas you say that there were improvements in the 60s and 70s, particularly 50s and 60s, till when the British were there. But after 1970s, uh, particularly 1970s onward, you find there's been no improvement. Now, the treatment which the Indian planters or managers, in fact, they treat the tea garden workers exactly in the same way. Probably you find the British were a little more sympathetic to the planters and workers than the Indian. This is how I really feel about it. Because you find mm-hmm. that there is an ethnicity or the caste biases, very strong ethnicity and caste biases. In case of the British, it could be racial. There's no doubt, but the racial can be for anyone. But then at least they had something, let's say, for the workers, etc. In, in a sense, if there were laws, at least they tried to implement these laws. At least that is what you find in the 50s and 60s. They were trying to bring more houses under pakka houses, uh, better uh, what is called health facilities, doctors were there. This all I have seen as a child, as I grew up. But that has completely disappeared in the 1960s, mid-1960s and 70s. So things are worse today. And you find that I think the cast of mind is very strong among us. And therefore, you find that uh, the Indians who are on the top of the management or who are actually running the company or run the company, they don't treat uh, workers who comes from the, who come from the let's say Adivasi or the Dalit background in a dignified manner. You know, mm-hmm. they could have done away with many of the systems which is a colonial legacy, but they want to perpetuate the colonial legacy. They won't allow let's say outsiders, uh, activists, the uh, human rights activists, or others to come into the tea state. Now, these were the kind of system which was there during colonial period. As the Indians, they could have done away with it. They don't. They want to continue having that. So, you as a journalist and activist, you cannot enter into the tea state. And can you tell me more about this wedge between union leaders and workers? Most of the trade union leaders or those who were part of the unions, they happened to be the Bengali or they happened to be the Assamese. And the workers happen to be the Dalits and Adivasis or the others. And then you also find that the managers again happen to be the Bengalis or the Assamese. So what do you find? The trade union leaders somehow got a kind of ethnic, uh, what is called, connections with the management. And you know that connections between the tea uh, uh, union leadership and the management by virtue of the fact they belong to the same ethnicity, somehow compromise the uh, what is called the, the 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 articulations and the assertions of the trade union in terms of addressing the interests of the workers. Secondly, you mm-hmm. find that the even unions they just confined to the wage and bonus. They never address the problems of the education. They never try to address the problems of the health, health facilities that are deteriorating. They never try to address the problem of the culture. So they had control over the workers. But then that remained as as just confined to wage bonus and something connected with, again, monetary benefits. And at best, you find that they became also a vote banks for the respective political parties. If you really go and workers, and if you really ask them, then you say, well, our unions are are, are compromising. Our unions have uh, what is called collaborating with the management, and they, they they are they belong to the same. They will say they belong to the same job. They belong to the same group, and therefore, you know, they come together, and in the process, they compromise our workers' interests. So this is the kind of feeling that they are among the workers, and therefore, you find that today many of these issues of the labor rather than being taken by the union, actually it is more rigorously or more vigorously is being taken by the organizations which belongs to the plant.
sanitation workers. Like you have T tribe students association, or, or there are NGOs which have been formed by the Adivasis or plantation workers. So what do you find in Assam, for example, student association, all Adivasi students association in Assam, or T tribe students association? They are much more powerful than all Assam Samadhu Sangha, which is the monop- which has almost monopoly of unionship in the among the tea garden workers. So similarly in Bengal, you find that you find there has been a problem now, and uh, you know the unions which are, are being run by the CPM or by the RSP, etc., etc. In fact, have been taken over by unions. There is a, a progressive tea workers union which have been formed by the Akhil Bharatiya Adivasi Parishad. So in, uh, in, in, in Darjeeling, you find that union has already become a Gorkha Union. I don't exactly remember the name now. It's Gorkha League or Gorkha League Union. So you find that the union itself is becoming more ethnicized, which I don't think is uh, good. But because of the failure of our kind of unions, you find that people have taken up the responsibility to address the issues on the ethnic lines. You know, that's I think is very unfortunate. And why is that? Have unions based on ethnicity not been effective as well? If unionization becomes along the lines of the ethnicity, then, you know, ethnic confrontation may really come up, which has never happened. So, D-Garden, one good thing about D-Garden workers is such a multi-ethnic society, multi-caste society, but because they all come from a lower social kind of background, there has never been a conflict. They have all been together, although sometimes you find that there might be a sporadic. But, but if this kind of organizations really come up, which is primarily trying to look at rather than in terms of workers, in terms of trying to do Adivasi or Nepali, in the long run, probably you will find that it will be ethnic uh, problems will come up. But at least till today, you find that workers in any state has really come as a workers because that is their life support system, you know. So they have not so far ethnicized themselves, but they look at the outsiders primarily in terms of ethnicization because, and it's precisely because of they belong to higher caste to different ethnic background, and that's the reason they don't really address their problems as effectively and as it they should have been. That is the kind of feeling that is there. Right, and in the article, you've made several suggestions about how to overcome colonial practices and enable workers with rights. Can you share some of these? So, because in the large tea states, you find that there has been a settlement of the workers within the tea state. That is where they also give the houses. So, you have different settlements. Now, what is really happening that since the land belongs to the state, the workers who have been living in that, uh, what is called house or that quarter for ages, their parents or the children, etc., etc., they don't have any rights. So what really happens when they retire, they can always be, so if their children are already uh, working, then they can stay with the children. But if the children are not really working, they are shelterless because they have to leave the tea gardens. And they don't have any other property. So what I was reading, so wherever they have in houses, in the in, in the tea states now they have been here for almost what, what nearly 200 years so the people who have been retiring and women you know at least in the settlement or the habitat which they have they must have a tenurial right they are not really evicted from the tea state as and when because they may say that you are no longer a worker in the tea state so you have to leave within the tea state in fact state must construct the the schools Taking into consideration maybe five or six states together, you can have at least one high school. You can have one good hospitals, etc. Because the hospitals which are being run by the management is very savvy safe. So this is the way in which you can actually curtail the complete monopoly over the land which the tea state has been enjoying. After all, even the, these are on the lease. These are the state management have got this lease for many years. So it is not it is not a completely permanently honored ownership they have. This lease. So 
if one really have a more imaginative mind and the state really takes the plantation workers as its citizens not in the formal sense as as a legal citizens but also in giving them all kinds of benefits which it gives to the citizens elsewhere then they need to enter into the state and address these problems you know one can completely break the monopoly that the state management has over the workers in other words it stretches the control stretches from morning almost 24 hours a day you know that kind of control needs to be broken and that is possible only when the state really comes and when a state comes then it's a possibility for the civil society also to enter into it at least where there is a control of the state are there unanswered questions that you continue to investigate Adivasis are now gradually moving beyond just being a plantation workers to, let's say, a kind of workers belonging to certain ethnic groups and they are now ready to organize themselves also along the larger ethnic lines and therefore move also the domain of culture and politics. So that's, I think, rather than just confined to the economic sphere, now they're moving to the sphere of culture and politics and that, I think, is an interesting issue and I would really like to explore that particular way in which it is really moving. That was a lot of rich and detailed information. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Professor Khaka. Something that he said early on in the podcast really stayed with me. The fact that Adivasis that rebelled against the British were forcefully evicted and moved to estates. This met the British goal of controlling land and investing and growing their capital via tea estates and maintaining low costs. Savarna Indians continued similarly exploitative practices through the violation of labor laws and the state remained pliant. I do recommend reading the entire article and I've shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll speak to Dr. Afia Sherbano Zia about Pakistan's Aurat March that takes place every year to mark Women's Day. Dr. Zia passes through the backlash the march received by tracing the history of the government's treatment of women and the fraught relationship between religion and patriarchy. The podcast is sure to be interesting. And to make sure you don't miss out on it, subscribe to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Overcast. This is the sixth episode of Research Radio, and we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social at epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with your feedback. For those who've already sent us feedback, thank you so much. And if you like what we're doing, please share it with interested folks. Take care and do tune in next week.